We are continuing with our series in Hebrews. Uh, the sermon title today is Slope Number Two, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter three. Uh, it encompasses a whole lot of verses. We're not going to read all those verses. In chapter three, we're going to start at verse twelve. And it says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each one daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Then over in chapter 4, starting at verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear precious Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the instruction it gives. I thank you for the admonishment it gives. I thank you for the reminder it gives of the standard that uh, you call upon me and each one of us here to live up to. Father, open up your word to us now. Open our minds and hearts that we would hear your message and then help us to apply it to our lives that we would not be just hearers of the word but doers also. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In continuing in the book of Hebrews, we continue with the theme. It's the theme of the whole book to Keep on. Hang in there. And I've shared with you about my friend Don Barnett who gave out pens. And on the pens, he had the scripture reference, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not on thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. And then under that, he had just a little motto, hang in there. And I can't think of those words, hang in there, without remembering that poster from the 70s of the little kitty on the bar holding on for a dear life, hanging in there. And that's where we are so often in life, is hanging on by the last strength we have at the end of the rope. And, and these Christians that the writer, that God was addressing through the writer, were Jewish Christians who had changed from their Judaism and accepted Christ as Savior And they were facing great challenges, not just the challenges that Christians of the day met, but also those challenges of being Jews who had become Christians, who now were seen by their fellow Jewish people as traitors who had betrayed the faith. And so the writing here is encouraging them to tell them that they have chosen the correct path, that they have chosen well, and to hang in there. And so our text today continues in that. And last week, our last sermon, two weeks ago, we talked about that Jesus was greater than the angels. And 
in this passage, this, the, the two chapters, three and four, the writer is sharing with them that Jesus is greater than Moses. Of course, Moses figures largely in, in Jewish faith, figures largely in our faith. He was the one that God called uh, uh, and to lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt and to cross the Dead Sea, the Reed Sea, the Red Sea, and enter into the land of Canaan. And there were many challenges, challenges in trying to get Pharaoh to let the people go and all of those miracles, and then challenges with God's people who uh, grumbled a little bit, who fussed a little bit, and then when it came time to go into the Canaan land, refused to go. And we know the story, we've heard it, we, we know it well that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, but that was not the intent. That was not what they were supposed to do. However long it took to go from Egypt to the border of Canaan is how soon they were supposed to go into the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And so it was supposed to be a very short time, again, only the time it took to travel there, but because of their hardness, because of their unwillingness to obey God, to believe God, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so the God through these scriptures here is encouraging His people to not let their heart be hardened. And as we think about what that hardening is, I'll remind you of the illustration I did with uh, with Jerry and Cash some time back where we put the coats and the blankets on, on Jerry representing sins and Cash would throw tennis balls at him. And as each sin was piled on, he could feel the tennis balls less and less. He became less sensitive to their impact. And that's what our hardening is when we continue to go our own way, when we continue to make our own decisions, when we continue to place what we think above what God says, our hearts become hardened and we become less sensitive to what God is trying to speak to us. The Bible tells us God is spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And we have the example in the Old Testament with Elijah as he had faced the prophets of Baal and then he, in his fatigue and fear, as Jezebel threatened his life, he, he, he ran some distance and then he hid in a cave. And God told him to go out and stand as he was going to pass by. And there were earthquakes and thunder and lightning, great, great displays in nature of power. And the scripture tells us, but God was not in any of those displays. And then Elijah heard a still, small voice and he went out and God was passing by. God speak to us. He, he wants us to listen. And if you have uh, uh, experience in dealing with children and dealing with youth, very often our natural response is, as they get rowdy, as they get loud, is to raise our voice and yell at them and try to call them down and that actually rarely, if ever, works. They just get louder and more boisterous. 
but often you can get their attention by being quiet and they start sensing something's different, something's going on. And so it is that God speaks to us through that quietness of voice, encouraging us, calling to us, bidding to us. He doesn't want to take a heavy-handed way with us. God can make us do anything He wants. Uh, It sometimes puzzles me why God has chosen to do what He does. He who created the world can certainly make us do His bidding, but He chooses not to do that. He chooses to want us to hear Him and to willingly respond, and that is a real act of love. As we discipline our children, we have, uh, certainly as they're young, less so as they get older, but we have that ability to make them do what our will is. If they, uh, in, the, in the good old days, I'll say in the days past, we would take and we may spank them if they did not obey and to get their attention. But we could, through our will, through, uh, through our power, through our bigness, we can make them do what we want us to do. But how much more precious is it when they willingly obey, when they remember the lessons and they do what we have taught them to do because they have been trained, because of their love for us. And those gifts that are so special are not the ones that someone made them make or led them to make, but when they are outside playing and they see a daisy or maybe even a dandelion, not realizing it's a weed, and they pick it and they bring it to you and present it. Here, Mommy, here's a flower. And that breaks our, that stirs our heart. It breaks our heart in a good sense because they're acting out of love. Well, that's what God desires too. He desires us in our day-to-day walk to want to take time to praise Him, to worship Him, to read His Word. How, how meaningful is it that we start our day before we do anything else to sit down and ingest some of His Word, to spend time with Him, to let Him talk with us and us talk with Him. What parent wouldn't like that, to have their children start their day acknowledging us? I remember when uh, Sue and I had Glenn, he wasn't, he wasn't but three or four years old, and we both worked. We had to take him to a daycare and you would pull up to the daycare, and he was gone and inside without hardly a goodbye. And, and the mixed feel, on one hand, you're, you're happy that he's comfortable and being independent, but on the other hand, you cry a little bit. I mean, act like you're kind of sad to leave me. And uh, so we, we want that, and God, uh, as our Heavenly Father, desires that we seek Him out, that we express our love to Him, that we worship Him as we have done in song and prayer already. So the author here is, is using the accounts with Moses to, to talk about how those hardened their hearts and the people knew the stories well and they knew what happened when they did finally obey God some 40 years later and went into the promised land. They received the land He had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. It was a fruitful land, a good land, and it became their homeland and is still their homeland. And so they received that reward, 
But it was only after wandering for 40 years because they had chosen to disobey, to, or, to harden their heart. They had chosen to doubt what God said. God said, go into the land and conquer it, and I'll be with you. And he, it, 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 we're, we're really an enigma as people because all that time from Egypt to the Canaan land, the miracles they saw. One, just Pharaoh, getting Pharaoh to let them go. But then they saw the crossing at the Red Sea where they crossed on dry land and when the Egyptian soldiers came after them that they got into the midst of the sea and God let the waves fall back in on them killing the Egyptian soldiers, but also rescuing the Hebrews. They saw the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of clouds by day. They witnessed all these miracles. Then they got to this challenge here at the Canaan land after God's done all this for them. And God says, go in and enter it. And they think, oh, wait a minute. We need to form a committee. Mm. <laughs> so they formed a committee of 12 and they sent that committee in to spy out the land and a vast majority, 10 out of the 12, came back and said, oh, we can't do this. We're not near powerful. There are giants there. The Nephilim lived there. And, and two, Caleb and Joshua said, no, we need to believe God. But the people chose to disobey God, to not trust Him, to not show faith in Him in this big task. And for that reason, the hardening of their heart they wandered in the desert. And verse 7 reads, So the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going to stray, and they have not known my way. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And we know that those who did not go in did not enter rest in the land of Canaan. None of them were allowed to go in. Even the great Moses, who led the people, who were, was the leader, who took the Ten Commandments, because he did not lead the people into the land of Canaan. He was not allowed to go in. And God only allowed them to see it from afar, from a mountaintop, looking over into the land. God refused to let them have the blessing. He withheld the blessing because of their disobedience, because of their hardening. And so he encourages us today. He says, today, it repeats it again, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And then starting in verse 4, the writing goes on talking about there is coming another rest, a Sabbath rest. Talking about that rest when the end times come, when Jesus comes and restores all things. That rest that we will be ushered into heaven, ushered into the presence of God, ushered into that place where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more wickedness, no more evil happenings, no more one person 
killing another person or robbing another person, a place of peace and safety, there's coming a rest. But that rest can be missed if our hearts are hardened and we do not receive what God is leading us to today. If we refuse to obey, if we choose to trust in our own way. One of the things, one of the analogies we can make I have in this next slide is that hardened is approximately equal to doubt. Hardening of our hearts is doubting what God says. The Israelites, when they were told to go into the land of Canaan, doubted that God would make them victorious. They saw the challenge before them. They looked at their own strength, their own power, their own resources and said, we can't do it. And in that, they doubted what Almighty God said He would do for them. And so we start doubting, and we can do that in our life. Last sermon, we talked about drifting, that slow process of moving away from the ways of God. And as we continue to drift, we fall into doubt. And I have another slide up here about this, where hardening turns into doubt. Will you advance it there for me, Drew? Uh, thank you. In talking about this doubting, it's the way that Satan entices us. Adam and Eve in the garden, and we know this story well, and, and we'll read these scriptures, follow along with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? What's he doing there? He's instilling doubt. Did God really say that? And Eve engaged with him. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, except God said you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. And then what does Satan do next? What does the servant say next? You're not certainly going to die. Again, instilling doubt. The serpent said that to the woman, and Eve pondered these things. For God knows, the serpent continues, that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he instills doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say that? And then you're not really going to die. And then God's withholding from you. He's not letting you. He knows that you'll really uh, engage into greater riches if you eat of the fruit. And so then it plays on Eve's and us humans' uh, pride and, and feeling that we deserve our sense of entitlement, that we should have everything, and ignoring that God was protecting her. And in that passage there where, where Satan, the serpent, says, you shall not certainly die, it was a half-truth. Because when you take that on the surface and when we take die, we think we mean the body ceases to function, that it falls over dead, no life in it, brain stops. And they weren't going to die if they ate of the tree, but their soul, their spirit would die 
if they disobeyed God. So that's what God's talking about. And as we read Scripture, we need to understand these depths to the Scripture. You can't read it and get the full meaning if you only read on the surface. So serpent came and he instilled doubt in Eve. And that caused her to harden her heart. And as she did that, she, she then, of course, talked to Adam. Adam agreed to go along. They went along. And that is when the spirit died. It became hardened against God to where they didn't hear. And Paul teaches us how that death is passed all the way down from Adam through every man. And we are dead to the ways of God. Our spirit is unresponsive to Him. We too often think that we are responsible for our faith, that we are the ones who decided to come to God. But in our dead nature, we would not even know about God. We wouldn't know of our need for Him. And so Paul talks about how the Spirit quickeneth brings to life that spirit enough to understand that there is a God, that we are separated from Him, that we need His salvation. And then we hear the Word, and the Word brings us to understanding, and we accept Jesus Christ. But that decision to accept Christ would never have happened had the Holy Spirit not made us aware, not brought us to life, not brought us that knowledge and conviction we were dead to God and that's the death that God was talking about of partaking of disobeying him of eating of the tree of good and knowledge there are different forms of doubt and I want to share some of those with you one of the ways that our doubt is is displayed is an elevation we raise our reason over God's word and we may not think that's what we're doing, but if we'll stop and, and think about it just a moment, that when we start questioning what God has told us, we're elevating our thought process, our reason, our intelligence over Him. The Israelites, as they were challenged to go into the land of Canaan, again formed, as I've uh, contemporized it, a committee, and they went in, they did their due diligence, another word we use today, and came back and said, we can't do this. They put their reason, their understanding, their knowledge above what God said to do. God often calls us and usually calls us to, to some challenge that is greater than our resources. Why would he do that? So we will trust him. So we will trust in Him. So our trust will grow so that He is glorified. If we take on a challenge that is within our strength and ability and reason, and there are some good ones there to do, it doesn't, it doesn't really glorify God except in how He brought us up. But if we take on a challenge that is impossible for us, impossible for us as a church, and we trust God each and every step. We pray to Him for, for, for knowledge, wisdom, for the resources to accomplish the task. All of those things beyond ourselves. Then when it comes in fruition, He is glorified 
and the fruit, the result, is greater than anything we could have accomplished. And so that is one of the ways that our doubt is expressed, is in elevating our thinking above His. The next one is rationalization. And it's akin to that, but we're, that is using reason to justify actions. For it is by faith that we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. God calls us to walk in faith, to trust Him, to take the steps that He leads us to, not our intellect and reason. And the next one we go to is equivocation. And that's kind of using wordplay, playing with words to, to change the meaning to what we want it to say is what it boils down to. We, we instead of taking just God at what He says, simply, honestly, purely in faith, we start playing, well, did God say you would really die? Is that really what God's talking about? And so we can equivocate. And there's such a fine line here, and it takes a balance because we are certainly to use our mind and our understanding to read God's Word, to discern. But at the end, we need to live by faith, not by our reason. And so we have to guard ourselves on our decisions. We, we do that due diligence which is not a bad thing, but at the point of decision, we do what God has said to do. All of the reason in the world may say that's a bad decision, but when we know God has said do this, we do that because God's going to provide, God's going to lead, God's going to see us through it. And so that's the balance that has to take place there. We don't go stupidly, blindly into some action or, uh, that, or issue. We, we do contemplate it. We do read His Word. We do seek wisdom from other people. But when we come to the point of decision, it's, okay, I have all this information, but what does God say? God told him to enter the land of Canaan, they had seen the example of how he had provided in mighty and majestic ways, but they chose their intellect over what God said. And the, one of the problems there logically is our intellect is limited to what we can perceive at this time and place. God's knowledge spans all of history, all of the world, and it also encompasses his plan. Very often, we, to our children, may give them an instruction. Or at work, we may be given an instruction. And we don't know the whole scheme of what our company is trying to accomplish. Our boss doesn't relay it to us. Sometimes there's not time. A lot of times, we just can't digest it. We don't have a global view but we're given this task. And that task may seem trivial and unimportant to us, but it's only because we don't see 
where it's supposed to lead. We don't see all the pieces of the puzzle because this person has a task, we have a task, that one, and they come together. Well, when God calls us to something, He knows where it's leading. He knows what He's wanting to accomplish. And He knows that Bobby and Rita need to be doing this part of it, even though they can't see everything. And Benita and Julie need to be doing that part. And so and so it goes. And all of it comes together to accomplish the will of God. And so we can feel uh, that our task is not important, that it's not necessary, that it's uh, burdensome. But as we trust God and that He said do it, then we trust that He's got a greater outcome that He will bring to fruition. So we need to trust God and not harden. So we don't want to rationalize or equivocate. And then ambivalence. Simultaneous contradictory attitude. We, we feel one way, but we do another. We think this, but we do that. We're, we really don't care. We're just kind of floating around. Doesn't really matter what happens. Uh, it's good enough is uh, uh, one of the words I think kills our churches and our work too much. Is Well, that's good enough. Well, it's not good enough in serving God. God deserves our best. I love that old hymn, Give of your best to the Master. Give of the strength of your youth. Give of your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle for truth. Our Heavenly Father deserves and requires our best as we go forward. And it's not good enough to do less. And then finally, we can in doubt take advantage of God's grace. In God's forgiveness, we know that He will forgive us our sins he will, over, he will uh, give us that uh, forgiveness as we confess. And so if we're not careful, we can be guilty of taking advantage of that grace, knowing that we're disobeying God, knowing that we're not following Him, knowing that we're choosing our own way, and we do it because that's what we want. And yes, God forgives and goes on. But remember those who wandered in the wilderness. You don't continue to flaunt God's grace in His face. You don't continue to disobey and then plead for forgiveness without Him saying, fine, just sit right there. I'm going to get my job done through those who trust me and well, I'll come back for you one day, but you're not used to me. And isn't that about the saddest term we can hear? You're of no use. No use, not because you're a bad person, because you're not smart, because you don't have abilities, but because you won't obey and do what God says. And And so God doesn't, kill us right away. He doesn't punish us through that kind of death. But He just says, okay, just stay here. Be quiet. And we go through life with kind of blinders, with shutters, with, with not seeing, with not being used, meaningless. That's when life becomes purposeless. Living for God is difficult. 
there are great joyous moments where we stand on the mountaintop and we purview everything He's done and we rejoice in His greatness and His beauty. But where does foliage occur? Down in the valley. We love to stay on the mountaintop, but it's down in the valley where the stream runs, where the rich soil is, where the growth occurs. In those valleys in our life that are tough and hard is where we grow, where we uh, develop faith and trust in God, and we become stronger for the next one. And God calls us to that. But to do it, to accomplish it, we have to trust in Him. And so we have seen in the first sermon how we start with drifting. We just kind of, we don't really, it's not intentional necessarily, but we just kind of move away from the cross. We move away from the ways of God. We are enticed by other things that catch our eye. And then as we drift away, as we cease to be in the Word, as we cease talking to Him on a regular basis, listening to Him on a regular basis, then we can start hearing that adversary, that enemy saying, is that really what God meant? Is that really what God wanted you to do? And and rather than relying on the Word and what we know He's told us, we think, well, you know, probably not. That doesn't make sense. I, I think it'd be so much smarter if I go this way. And so that doubt starts becoming a growing lack of conviction. Whereas we initially, when we become saved, Jesus is so wonderful. He's so good. I want to live for Him. I want to do everything for Him. We drift away. Then we start doubting. And we lose that initial conviction. And that was why I used that today's scripture in there. Of I have this against you, you have lost your first love. God wants us to love him with that initial love that we would give him everything. But life draws us away. And so the encouragement here is to stick to that scripture. And we have 2 Timothy 3.16 here reminding us all scripture is inspired by God. Yes, it's been translated from the original language, but it's God's word. I believe it cover to cover. What doesn't make sense to me is my limitation and my rationality, not God's word. I believe it's all true. I just have to study it deeper, study it more, let him speak to my heart. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to help us realize, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It's a, it's a light uh, to our soul. Thy word is a light unto my path. It illuminates where we fall short with God. God doesn't do that because he's just trying to run us down to belittle us. He does that so we can say, God, thank you for showing that to me. I confess that I have this failing. I repent of that. And I want to live for you more, leaving that behind. So he makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. 
God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. God wants to give you the greatest blessing in this life you can have. And that blessing is that he uses you in some capacity. Maybe different for each and every one. It's not going to be the same thing. And we're not, we don't need to, to compare ourselves to the other to think uh, I'm better or they're better. We do what God has called us to do. And we are blessed because the king is entrusting us with his kingdom, with those he wants to bring to Christ. He's entrusting us to do his will to make a change in this world. And as we yield to him, keeping our hearts soft, keeping our hearts sensitive to him, when we have a doubt, we go back to the word. Okay, God, I'm slipping here. Let me, let me Show me again what it is you've said. Show me again what the truth is, Lord. Speak to my heart, Lord Jesus. Draw me close to you. And that's what the author, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to.